Hello and welcome to Decarb Connect's very first podcast. My name is Alex Cameron. I'm the founder of Decarb Connect. Our mission as a business is to bring the stories and data and project updates that all relate to how the hard to abate sector is pursuing decarbonisation. Some tough decisions, tough budgets and uh, yeah, teams that are working on quite complex projects at the moment. So our goal is through our events, our reports, and also this podcast, just to bring some of that to life a little. And today, I'm very pleased to welcome uh, Pratima Rangarajan, who is CEO of the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative, and Dominic Emery, who's Chief of Staff from BP. They've agreed to take part in a, a conversation. So I'll be jumping in at the end with some questions, but I will hand over to Pratima, who will introduce herself, and we'll go from there. Thank you, Pratima. Super. Thank you so much, Alex, for inviting me here. OGCI Climate Investments is a unique fund that has been set up to reduce carbon emissions. We're part of the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative. It's a consortium of some of the world's largest oil and gas companies that have come together to take practical action on climate change. At our investment fund, we only invest in solutions that will deliver a lower emissions footprint. Thanks for that. And Dominic? Thank you very much indeed for having me on today. I look forward to the uh, to the conversation. Um, my name is Dominic Emery. I'm Chief of Staff at BP. Um, I've spent 30 years in BP in various roles. Um, and at the moment, um, my responsibilities are primarily um, helping the new BP leadership team um, and our board as we advance through the energy transition. Great. Thank you both very much. And I know you've uh, had a chat about how we'll structure this, but the, the kind of theme of the conversation today is really leadership in and around industrial decarbonisation with a particular eye on what the impact of COVID um, and associated fallout has been. So perhaps I'll hand over to you and then I'll jump back in with some questions towards the end. So thank you very much for that. Well, well Prasim and I will do a, a kind of dialogue around both the, the overall transition to, to net zero and also the impact of uh, uh, COVID on emissions. So perhaps I can ask Prasim a little bit about her kind of perspectives on the impact of COVID on emissions uh, in the near term and the medium term. Thank you, Dominic. You know, as we all realise, the COVID-19 pandemic has brought human activity, as we know it, to a standstill. And this has impacted both health, life, as well as the economy. But when we look at the emissions footprint, the estimate for reduction of carbon dioxide by the end of the year is only between 4 and 8%. Now, to put 4 and 8% in perspective, that's what we need to achieve every year for decades in order to manage the climate challenge. <clears throat> so the COVID taught us something really important, which is incremental changes will not be good enough and that we need a societal transformation. We need to change the way we produce and consume goods across all parts of society. Otherwise, we won't achieve our targets. Now, you know, it does sound really big and dire, but I think, I mean, I think Dominic and I, we're seeing some changes, some really positive glimmers that such a societal transformation can begin now. Uh, yes, I do agree. And I think your point is absolutely right. Um, the, the changes that we're seeing as a result primarily of demand destruction and the relatively kind of modest impact um, of demand destruction on the CO2 emissions means that the actual change, the transformation required will be kind of truly immense. 
So what we are seeing is that countries are building post-COVID recovery plans, which will include billions in infrastructure spending and jobs creation. And these plans have to link strongly to the country's climate targets. In many examples, possibly the most significant being the EU stimulus packages that are being worked to support a range of decarbonisation opportunities, including vehicle electrification and, for example, hydrogen, which looks like it will have a key role in industrial decarbonisation of the so-called hard-to-abate sectors. And if we then look at the sort of companies level, we see that uh, companies are putting together post-COVID strategies that have to include bold moves to reduce emissions. And I'll just give an example from our own perspective from BP before and after COVID. Um, ourselves, um, through our new uh, chief executive, Bernard Looney, we announced on the 12th of February a new purpose and ambition to be net zero by 2050 or sooner. Since then, with the COVID tragedy upon us and also the OPEC plus kind of breakdown and reconstitution of kind of oil prices, this has led us to kind of really rethink long run oil, gas and carbon prices, which is kind of rooted in the energy transition, but clearly impacted by COVID. And I think will make a, a significant difference into the kind of the pace of the transition as we see it. Actually, Dominic, you I think what you mentioned is really interesting. BP was already well on its way in this energy transition. You had plans, you had announced these plans, and yet the COVID pandemic has made you accelerate these plans. And it's made you rethink the future. Now, what if, I, what if we're talking to a new industrial player, somebody who's new to the transformation, and they're, they're here facing COVID plus the need for uh, decarbonization at the same time. Um, is there any particular advice you would give them or lessons learned that you could share with them perhaps? Uh, yes, and I think um, one of the key lessons for us is that uh, timing is really important. Um, and I think the time really, really has come. There've been many opportunities over the kind of prior decades to kind of really dive into the kind of the transformation. Uh, we had an experience through our alternative energy division um, which we set up back in uh, late 2005. Um, and we set that up and possibly were kind of in a number of businesses too early before the world started to get kind of really serious about it. And I think both the Paris Agreement and the kind of the subsequent COVID uh, challenge has actually created a, a real kind of tipping point. Um, we went through a kind of a phase of experimentation over the last few years and are now starting to kind of push into more material investments as we become more confident of the opportunities, again, supported by Paris, supported by our stakeholders. Um, and I think today the timing is better for new sectors and companies to dive into decarbonisation because the transformation is happening real time and companies can expect a much more positive policies and, and demand. Um, and those policies from policy support uh, from countries, for sure, we're seeing that emerge quite dramatically in the, the EU, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, and elsewhere. So I think the time is now, but uh, timing is really sort of everything here. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. And maybe I could say the same for the industrials that we work with. As you know, we work not just with the oil and gas sector, um, but also with large industrials. We, we work in, we've got investments in CMAT, iron and steel and chemicals, power generation, as well as in commercial transportation and commercial air conditioning. And all of these sectors actually have a very high 
emissions footprint. And therefore, huge opportunities for us to drive reductions. And, um, and I think what's interesting is that we are seeing all these, con- these companies or innovators come to the fore with great technologies, great changes that we can me- make. And the challenge thus far has been finding the demand for, for these low-carbon goods. And without demand, we cannot expect suppliers to keep making changes. We need people to buy these low-carbon products, to constantly think about how to decarbonize uh, from the demand side. That creates the pull. And that's really where the challenge is. So maybe we can go back in and look at uh, what could create the demand. And I think, Dominic, you brought up the post-COVID policies for these that the governments are putting together right now. Uh, And I think these policies are going to be critical because a societal transformation of the size that we need cannot be driven um, without policy because policy provides the incentives that changes the way people buy and changes the way people build. And we need both of those in order to drive large changes. Um, And I think you've seen this before in the work that you do as well, Dominique. That is exactly right. I mean, we've we've seen policy incentives work really well in in certain jurisdictions. And um, I will point out perhaps a couple from our experience, um, and then perhaps I'll ask you, Pratima, given the kind of the OGCI Climate Investments Activity, where you see examples of kind of good policy. Um, so my views would be that uh, in, in Europe, for example, the emissions trading scheme, um, notwithstanding some of the kind of the challenges a few years ago, has started to kind of drive decarbonisation, particularly in certain sectors. And in some countries like in the UK, where we had a, a floor carbon price, that actually was, was very helpful in driving lower carbon power generation into the system. For example, uh, renewables, offshore wind, onshore wind, solar and, uh, and gas as kind of support. And also the UK saying, and we're not going to have coal-fired power generation by 2025 is an important kind of signal here as well. Uh, another example that I think is poss- possibly less kind of well trumpeted was the, the cafe standards for, for, for cars in the US and the gradual improvement, the kind of one or two percent improvement in efficiency kind of year on year, that kind of went on silently in the background, uh, which I think uh, led to a kind of more efficient automobile industry in the US and, and cars with uh, lower emissions, both of a carbon dioxide, uh, but also of a kind of other emissions components as well. Um, so I think uh, those two policies were, were pretty effective, but there are specific examples that you're familiar with. I know, Pratima, particularly around CCUS, perhaps I'll ask you to talk about those. So carbon capture, utilization and storage, or CCUS, is a methodology to recycle carbon dioxide. So it's very similar to what we do with plastic bottles. If we recycle them properly, they don't end up in the bottom of the ocean. Similarly, with carbon dioxide, the goal is to recycle it so it doesn't end up in the atmosphere causing global warming. So uh, recently, in 2018, the U.S. updated a policy framework, 45Q. It's a production tax credit similar to what they provided for wind. And this has really revitalized implementation of CCUS in the U.S. And the United States will probably become a front runner in this technology. And if we can 
if, and we're really quite confident that if if CCUS and 45Q go the way that wind energy went with its production tax credit, we will see economic benefits across a wide range of states in the United in the US. In fact, we as an as a fund have investments in CCUS projects in three different states already. And we're expecting to accelerate that as we see more viable projects coming up. And back to our experience, uh, similar to what Dominique was talking about, these projects have always been there. What they needed was a little bit of policy help because new industrial or energy technologies and solutions always need a little extra help to get them started. And similar to what happened with offshore wind in the United Kingdom, for example, there was a policy mechanism in um, a a feed-in tariff, really, in the UK. But over a 15-year period, the costs of wind energy have come down to a third. So we expect that the policy really helps get these new technologies off the ground, low-carbon technologies, and then we'll see cost declines and people really uptaking. Uh, the technology. But, you know, Dominic, I want to come back to uh, your uh, mention of energy efficiency and the CAFE standards. Um, Almost all the models um, expect energy efficiency to be, us driving energy efficiency to be a huge part of uh, delivering on our climate targets. And um, I think it's almost 40% in one of the IEA scenarios. Um, and so there are, and this is one that just is absolutely fascinating to me because there's so many, one does not need to be an investor like us or a big company like BP to participate in energy efficiency. There are so many opportunities for all of us individuals in our house, in our businesses to drive efficiency, to save money, to save resources, um, drive more efficient organizations and save the planet. Um, so I think it's one where, um, you know, the biggest thing we can do, each of us to help, is is switch it off, <laughs> switch it down, or don't buy it if we don't need it. And that's a huge part of our economy is, is the waste that we create. So why not get rid of that? And we can all participate in the, in the climate transformation. Pratima, th- thank you. I, and I, I, I'll just kind of close on a, on a few points. And I think the energy efficiency point is is immense. And it is something where, as you rightly say, we can all participate. If we take it back to the kind of um, the industrial base and the kind of supply side, my kind of grounds for optimism on the energy transition and the post-COVID transformation, some of the silver lines in this cloud, I, I think are around the kind of the notion of kind of building back better. Um, it's about building back greener, about building back smarter, and a build, building back fairer. But it will require a massive rewiring and replumbing of our energy systems. And if you take an optimistic view, that presents a great opportunity for those of us in the energy business, where we'll be investing at least a trillion dollars a year, maybe more, um, in, uh, in, in the, to, to achieve the Paris scenarios. So taking that optimistic point of view, a combination of this big industrial transformation plus energy efficiency across billions of users. We do think this is possible. We remain optimistic. And I think the kind of the COVID transformation may may actually, a silver lining may be that it's helped to accelerate this. 
Thank you, Dominic. I totally agree. And I think we can even spread that message outside the energy ecosystem. When we build it back better, we should do this in food service. We should do this in um, air conditioning, building materials. There are so many opportunities that we see as a fund across the ecosystem that uh, we hope that more of you, more of you participate and more of you support the transition. Well, let me hop in at this point, if I may, with a um, a couple of questions. I think one of the things that interests me as a kind of relative outsider is what perhaps have you learned about how to create those great consortia kickoffs, those great projects that can accelerate? Because um, that's really, you know, I guess one of the big challenges for the next few years, is it not? So any thoughts yeah. on that? The Oil and Gas Climate Initiative, I think, is a great example of a consortia at work. I mean, it's very unique. Imagine 13 competitors within the oil and gas space and energy space coming together to take practical action on something they consider bigger than each of their companies. Because it is bigger. It's bigger than each of their companies. It's bigger than each of their nations. Um, and what we are able to do with you, and as a fund, they set us as, as a fund, but our billion dollars is a lot more than that, because we are able to use the expertise and the resources of these global companies to, in fact, punch way above our weight. And I'd like to use the example of the Net Zero T-Side project in the United Kingdom. It is a CCUS project with a goal to decarbonize a huge chunk of the northeast of England. That's pretty ambitious. So the way it we as a fund invested in this project in 2017. We borrowed um, some great resources, um, a project leader from one of our member companies, ENI, built out this project. And today it's being led by five of our member companies. So it's graduated from our little hands. It's moved on to them. BP is the operator. And the plan is so much more ambitious than any fund our size could achieve. So it's the combination of having this consortia with huge resources, with a small, nimble fund attached to it, um, is, is actually a really good concept. And in fact, I should give a lot of the credit to Dominique and his peers on my board, because they're the ones who actually built up the concept and gave us um, what's a guidebook to get it started. And I think that's a lesson learned. It's great when a small company can get started with clear objectives and strategic uh, parameters. Dominic? Thank you, Pratima. Yeah, and I uh, appreciate the kind of the, the, the kind words. And we're very excited about Net Zero T-Side as maybe an archetype for industrial decarbonisation in the future, both in the UK and beyond. Um, a couple of other examples, I think, of possibly worth quoting of an industry consortia, Alex, as you mentioned. One is the, um, the Hydrogen Council, um, which has got many members looking at to trying to create a new hydrogen economy. Uh, and this isn't purely the kind of supply side. This is also the kind of the demand side, industrial gas companies, OEMs, for example. And I think almost uh, the Hydrogen Council looking to kind of will the hydrogen economy into being uh, through a series of kind of projects and initiatives and policy support. So I think that's a super example of what can be done together across industry. Um, at a more kind of policy and incentive level, there's the Energy Transitions Commission, again, which includes a number of companies, but also includes a number of NGOs uh, and kind of supporting academics, which is trying to create, if you like, the appropriate policy environment 
or decarbonisation of hard to abate sectors, for example, as one of its reports uh, a couple of years back. So I think ETC is another, another great example. And of course, the World Economic Forum are also developing a number of cross-industry consortia around steel, uh, for example, and then also around natural climate solutions, um, around the use of kind of trees, um, peatlands, um, and sort of agricultural offsets to uh, to try and achieve decarbonisation. So there's some great examples of uh, of consortia trying to drive the energy transition forward, and uh, we're delighted to participate in those as as are some of our, our peer companies. So when I was talking with some of the kind of more mid-tier or regional industrials um, in Europe in particular. For those who were not close to a geographical cluster, like that one thing that came up time and time again was, well, how can we, you know, make meaningful strides forward if we don't have access to those kind of more geographic groups of companies? And my question is not how are you going to magically solve it? My question is, if you were, you know, in a senior leader in one of those uh, organisations, what, what do you think you would be looking at doing? What, what do you think you would attempt to tackle or what would you do to try and move your organization forward without that kind of geographic element uh, in your arsenal? What would you at least seek to do to move your site or your business forward? It's not easy, but there will be some things that could be done. What, yeah. what would you be trying to focus on? Yeah, Alex, when we look at uh, across industries, what we're seeing is that there is, it comes back to energy efficiency, which also comes back to resource efficiency. Because when you're inefficient with energy, you're probably inefficient with your own raw materials as well. I think almost anybody in this world who's running a business, whether it's personal, professional, different sizes, has an opportunity to drive resource and energy efficiency. The, the systems analysis we're seeing is that most products and processes are at least 50% inefficient. In other words, 50% of what we produce is not used or consumed by humans. Even the food system, 50% of the world's food is wasted. So um, it's true for the industrials, it's true for transportation. In some cases, and I use cement, iron, steel as good examples, we need to revamp the entire process so it can use less energy and it produces less carbon dioxide, even from the chemistry of, of the process. So there are multiple opportunities and there are uh, innovators who are trying to solve this problem. So I think there is a potential even for isolated plants and even for isolated uh, humans, actually. And Dominic, your, your thoughts on that? I think the, if you like, the pecking order that uh, Pratima just described is absolutely right. You, we really need to start off, focus on energy efficiency, uh, which again represents a, a huge opportunity and, and frankly, as not as, as not as well tapped as it should be. Then we move on to the provision of kind of renewable energy, um, be it renewable power or potentially other sources of renewable energy, hydrogen being a, being a good example in the future. But then, then it will probably be the case that there'll be kind of residual emissions that can't be um, that, that can't be managed through efficiency and through renewable energies. And therefore, you'd have to seek to offset either through physical offsets like carbon capture use and storage or virtual offsets or tree-based offset, offsets such as uh, natural climate solutions. So I think I think everybody can play a part in this. Uh, I think the recipe at a kind of macro level is kind of relatively relatively simple. 
uh, but kind of getting into that and getting the appro appropriate advice as to how to do it. Um, I think that's something that we can uh, we can lean into as a kind of industry. And in fact, consortiums are a great place to learn the best practices. So some of the ones that Dominique has named, it's true we're seeing them pop up in all the different industries and we would highly encourage them because climate should not be a comp competitive game. It should be at some point a collaborative game because we do it for ourselves, but we do it for our children and we need to leave this a better planet. So my last question, I know, Dominic, for example, I know that BP has added some new roles recently, but I, I wondered for both of you, what do you expect to see in general? It's not necessarily specific to your own organisations or partners, but what, what do you envisage some of the structures of uh, hard to abate sectors looking like, perhaps in five or eight years time uh, in companies that are really succeeding with decarbonisation? Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, I do think um, there are, are two components, probably kind of structural components and also the ca capability components. I'll actually start with the kind of the capabilities because within organisations like kind of uh, BP and many other big kind of industrial um, enterprises, there are significant transferable skills. Um, these can be project engineering skills. Um, these could be skills for kind of integrating sort of complex uh, activities and projects. Um, these can also be commercial skills um, and also kind of policy and advisory skills. So I think there are a number of, if you like, transferable skills that I think work work very well. Um, and then I think in terms of the kind of the structure, my sense is that um, solving these problems requires a much more integrated approach. So I would expect that um, in the past, companies turn up as a, a kind of a partly retail, partly oil production, partly gas production, actually providing something which is a much more kind of integrated offer to a city, for example, or to a kind of fellow corporate, um, I think will be kind of the winning way. So I think integrated energy provision will be with abatement solutions alongside that, I think will be an important part of the way. Uh, certainly we see the the, the future of, uh, of, of our company. Pratima, any thoughts in addition to that? Yes, we work with a lot of innovators that actually work on um, the fringes of the companies, not the headquarters. So they work with the actual working people. So I'll, I'll provide a slightly maybe different uh, Point of view, which is, I think a lot of headquarters have turned their turned their vision towards decarbonisation. That they have developed great strategies, but there is a frozen middle, and the message needs to get all the way down to every person who is turning the crank. We have to empower people, so I'd say we need to approach it more like we did safety. Safety was something that we empowered every person in the industry to stop the train. We used to you know, have huge change management processes we drove across industries around safety. And it should be, this should be looked at in exactly the same manner. Otherwise it won't go fast enough till everyone who's turning the crank is thinking about climate. Okay. Well, look, thank you to you both. I, you know, I know it's no mean feat to find time in your diary for probably the bulk of your work, let alone to join a podcast like this. So thank you so much for joining. And to everyone who's listening or watching, obviously we hope you'll share this, but also if you have comments or questions, or if you would like to take part in another conversation in the future, then get in touch with me. Um, but Dominic and Pratima, thank you really so much. Thank you for being generous with your time and your input. It's much appreciated. Pleasure. Thank you. Okay.